morning. Good morning, everyone. Hi, uh, my name is Joanne Butcher. I am a business coach. I have a company, Filmmaker Success, and we are dedicated to helping filmmakers raise money. So uh, welcome to our podcast um, that we do. Um, I uh, always like to interview filmmakers and talk to them about how they built their careers. And one of the things that I find missing out there in terms of the information that's around for producers is how filmmakers made their first films, you know, because uh, uh, the, somebody gets interviewed and they're like, oh, I'm on my 18th film and how did you do that? And it's not very helpful for people who are just starting out. So, um, we, I, I love to ask uh, how you made your first films and how you got started. And so uh, we'll be, I'll be asking some questions about that today. So um, welcome everybody to uh, Linda Palmer. And uh, Linda is a filmmaker. We, we are gonna find out all about how you started. I don't read a bio out on these mm -hmm. uh, things but we we just find out <laughs> ask questions um and uh so my first question that i always like to ask is i'm i'm sorry i'm messing around here i'm trying to get both of us on the screen at the same time i have you on i have you on the screen so you're oh, okay um <laughs> so my first question that i always like to ask is when did you first know that you were a filmmaker Um, without actually knowing it was a job. <laughs> uh -huh, right. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> well, that was probably in high school when we did a, um, a little film in one of our, we had like a, um, TA class, teacher's assistant class. Uh -huh. And it was with one of the, um, I don't even think it was a theater teacher. I think he was like a chemistry teacher or something, but he basically let us go out and make projects, right? And encouraged us to do something artful. And so we had gone and made, took a little, you know, camera and made a short little red riding hood in the forest <laughs> film. <laughs> and then we did another one that we did with um, paintings and it kind of changed. So it was, it started with the sticks album. Um, and then we kind of painted that to change and it was very, very short, but you saw that album, basically a horse came through it and then it had an eye in the horse and then the eye blinked and blood dripped down and made a puddle by the horse. <laughs> That was my first foray into anything related to film. <laughs> so, so what you're telling me is you you got into film, sort of walking backwards into it. <laughs> is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there wasn't. And I grew up in a town that didn't have really. Uh, it was a very very small town, five thousand people all together, and um, so there wasn't like a lot of you know, uh, introduction to film or anything like that with theater. So, you know, that was something that I was involved in, but it wasn't until I went to school, uh, later on for college and I wanted to be a journalist, uh, that I realized I didn't want to be in camera and I wanted to be behind the camera. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I started just taking more courses, learning more about production, more learning about screenwriting and, 
went about it that way. So you actually studied to be a journalist. Yes, I wanted to be a newscaster. <laughs> Aha, right, right. These I don't know the- why I wanted to be a newscaster. I, I think what it was actually, I didn't want to be like um the main person on the news. I wanted to be somebody like a, a traveling correspondent. Oh, yeah. And I think I wanted to do that because I wanted to travel more than anything. And, you know, when I saw myself on screen in our, our classes, I was like, yeah, I don't really like the way I look. <laughs> so, so I'm like, I'd rather be that person behind, you know, pushing all the buttons or, you know, producing, editing, whatever. So <laughs> it was a gradual. So it sounds as though in college and, and even from the films that you made before, kind of by accident, um, uh-huh. that you you got to see the different roles and then you were able to clarify. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm a huge proponent of actually if you want to learn a film, make a film, you know, I, I think that I, I did have a fair amount of college, but it was mixed, you know, and it wasn't a, I didn't graduate with a film degree or anything. I took courses in production. I took courses in screenwriting. I took courses in finance and, you know, post, but I. That was very I smart of you. How are you so, so smart? <laughs> well, you know, and and I think this is a big part of it. I had a some sort of sales job from very early. So being in sales, I think that that really helped me be able to sell myself and sell ideas down the road. Um, what I did learn though, uh, because I, I, I became very, I was very good in sales and electronics. And so not working in the industry per se, I didn't see why people wouldn't take my call. Right. I didn't see why people wouldn't listen to my, my pitch. <laughs> and, and so, you know, not having the knowledge, I think I just did things and I got a little farther than most people would. Right. Um, also, you know, you're just taught not to let no be a problem. Right. And it's, it's, so, it's so interesting. You're talking about sales because, um, as I said, you were very smart to think about studying finance in school. I didn't think about finance until years later, you know. Um, right. But the the sales piece is so significant, I think, as a skill for a producer, you know. Oh, absolutely. I think and- it's my one skill that gives me, it's probably the most important skill I have in what I do. Hmm. You know, from not only trying to raise money, but encouraging people to join a project that maybe, you know, especially when I first started out, like, why would I work for you? You know, you haven't done anything. So, but also, you know, down the road in negotiating locations or negotiating, you know, any kind of post deals and even negotiating distribution. So I, I really see that it helped, but I was going to say, you know, looking back now, I can see the value of being in something that allows you to develop relationships. So in other words, if you go to school and you have, uh, you know, peers that they're going to follow in that path as well, you kind of grow up together in the industry and different things present themselves because you know people, right? And it's very much an industry where it's very helpful to know people. And I, I think had I started in some sort of sales in the industry, whether it be uh, a salesperson working for a distributor or a salesperson work from working for an agent, 
I probably would have gone a lot further in my career than what I did as far as I, and I don't want to say I didn't go far I've made like 25 films in 25 years so clearly I've done a lot of work but I think um where people look at success they go oh you know you worked for a big studio or you worked on a giant film right um people get, tend to gauge success that way um I have a little bit different gauge of success I mean I've done every film I wanted to do right <laughs> <laughs> so and I have a very supportive partner what, what is your what is your definition of success what I'd love to hear that well I I think if I've been able to complete something that I that I wanted to do and I've done the best job I can and it's been successful in whether or not it's you know got in festivals or awards or some sort of distribution then I think that's a success right um, is it a box office hit? No, <laughs> it's an independent film, right? I mean, there's a lot of independent filmmakers out there that have varying levels of success. So um, I, I also don't think that necessarily working for a big studio is, for me, I don't think that that would have been a great opportunity because you don't have as much creativity over your project, as much control over your creativity, right? I mean, you're constantly giving into, um, giving up bits of creativity to studio execs or, you know, whatever uh, along the line, wherever people want to um, sort yeah. of add their own, their own piece and, to whatever. And what I think is so interesting is that film schools really gear their attention towards having the film school students go work in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just not necessarily interesting to a true independent, you know, um, right. a true independent is saying like you, they want to have creative control. You know, I, I always like to say that, you know, in, in therapy, um, control is <laughs> having control is sort of a bad thing, but in film production, you know, true independents really want to have creative control over their work. And yeah, I mean, at, at some level, I mean, it is a film project. So film is very collaborative as opposed to writing a novel or, you know, having a podcast or anything that's very kind of singular where you know what you want to have on that. Or, you know, if you're writing a book or something like that, film is is very much a you know you listen to other people as well so i don't want to say there's never a chance i mean never um a moment that you're going to lose some control but it it's collaborative right like if someone has a really good idea an actor or a dp or something like that in the project just because of someone else's idea i don't think that you shouldn't take it because you want it to be all yours i i used to look at it's so funny when i i didn't watch a lot of film i didn't watch a lot of movies or tv when i was growing up so i can't say that necessarily i was influenced by that like some director or producer or whatever um but one thing i do remember in my late teens early 20s is when i would see a film that was written directed and produced by the same person or they had a ton of credits hmm. that 
I didn't enjoy that movie as much as some movies that were, you know, interesting. A lot of people working on them. And, and I think that's because you can get in your way as a filmmaker of making your project better. If you'd close yourself off and think, I just want it to be my idea. And I think that that's kind of, if someone wants that, they may want to do a different kind of film, you know, that's more singular um, or write a book or, or something that they just have that much more control over. Because in, in no matter what kind of independent production it is, you have costume people, you have makeup, you have your art department, you have possibly other writers, um, directors, producers that are going to have ideas. And I think that those can improve the project, right? And you just have to be able to sort of assess whether or not that's really what you want to do. But a lot of times I think it's totally helped me, you know, and I, and I really appreciate having other input. So I, I just think in studios, it can be completely different, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, um, you know, even when, uh, you have an actor who makes a great suggestion and you decide to take the suggestion, it's still and ultimately in your control. Right. Right. And, exactly. um, and I feel as though when I when I really speak to a true independent, you know, the, this is really what they're looking for. They're looking to be able to tell their own stories okay. and 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 ha and be able to do, you know, what they want to do. Absolutely. Um, and to me, that's just seems perfectly normal. Great. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> um so you uh, left college, given everything you studied, it sounds as though you ended up with a degree called undecided, but. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I had a, um, well, I mean, I went to the two day film school, Deb Simmons two day film school, uh, yes. did several. I haven't, HF... I haven't heard Deb Simmons name for a long I know. time. But, but you know what, Deb was great. I think that that was the, he probably was one of the biggest inspirations in what I did. Because yes. what what he does for anyone that doesn't know is the first day he covers everything that you need to do in the film to get it in the can. And then the second day he covers from post-production to selling it and getting distribution. And he tells you how to do that with, if you have $5,000 or $5 million. And it's, and he's, I think one of the things he says, that's really funny. And he's a line producer. He worked, did a lot of work for Roger Corman. Mm -hmm. a lot of films so obviously as someone that people should listen to but he's like you know you're gonna write I don't know 21 28 checks whatever the number was and he's like if you write any more than that you're not gonna finish your film <laughs> like that is like good 28, what was it you said? whatever the number of checks were that he said he's like you're you need to write these 20 some odd checks and if you write one more than that you're not gonna finish your film <laughs> Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, oh, so it's kind of like a way to uh to control the budget. You control know? your budget. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Jeff yeah. Simmons is great. And it's so funny because you just said, you know, someone who you should listen to. But you know, I think a lot of people just don't understand the whole world of Dove Simmons and Roger Corman, who right. to me is such a hero because oh, yeah. Again, somebody who is a true independent. I mean, prolific, prolific, <laughs> prolific, and a true independent. 
And yeah, I think if you look at their IMDb credits, they have hundreds and hundreds of films. Like they were producing, and yeah, so they're low budget, you know. O- overall, like they, he made Corman made so many films and gave so many people an opportunity. Right, he gave them a platform, and so I, I just think it's it. He's really an inspiration. I think when I took his course, Quentin Tarantino may have taken his course mm-hmm. a few years before me and Spike Lee did. And they both had gone out and made their first film after taking Dove's class. Mm-hmm. And and it was, that's what I did. I took his class and I went out and I made a film. So- And which um, film was that that you made? So um, that was that was Look At Me, my very first film if, that I produced. <laughs> and um, really I was building my team and I was working with a, a partner at the time named Todd, Todd Wade. And he had a lot of experience as well. And he had done one or two films prior to that. And so he had a uh, relationship with the distributor that basically I had optioned a script and he literally got a distributor before it was even made. And it wasn't a good deal. It was a lousy deal as a matter of fact, but, but, but the point is we had, at the end of doing that film, we had two films we had two movies in every blockbuster in the country. So yeah. at the time, at the time, at least we could say, yeah, our film's a blockbuster, right? And it was, it was every, every blockbuster. Was it a good film? Yeah. <laughs> you can go look at the, you can go look at the credits and, and, you know, sort of get your idea, but it was a low budget thriller. You know, it was about a girl, a website model that was abducted by a fan and he kept her producing content in his basement so no one would recognize that she was gone and so it was really she had to find a way to to let her fans know that something was wrong without him knowing so it you know it had the ability to be a good film but I think overall I learned so much on that I learned um I I was a producer and a designer on it Hmm. My director at the time said that I was a frustrated director. <laughs> and since I had never directed before, I'm like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean, a frustrated director? Anyway, I just meant I wanted more control. <laughs> we'll get down to it, yes. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, I did a couple of films with Todd and then I moved on, I did my own film. So. so Linda, you know, I just really so appreciate your generosity in saying that it wasn't a particularly good film mm-hmm. um, because I feel as though I, I, I say this all the time. So I call my business filmmaker success. And one day I'm mm-hmm. going to change to second film mm-hmm. because I really feel as though making your first feature is such a mountain to climb. There's so much okay. to learn. And the, the lowest bar I set for my clients is that they get distribution. Right, right. Yeah. So, hey, I'll I'll be totally honest and I'll let you know these days. We did that film over 25 years ago. Um, we shot that film and completed it for less than sixty thousand dollars. So <laughs> it could be done. I mean, and sixty thousand dollars then was probably more like a hundred yeah, and twenty thousand yeah. today, right? Double right. it, double it. So, but still, that's not very much money, you know. No, it's not very much money. Um, and so, you know, I feel as though often as a coach, you know, I'm working with my clients to to sort of 
like like you were saying, Dove Simmons about the twenty twenty, mm-hmm. try to make it something that's manageable because you know people often want to make their first feature and win an Oscar at the same time. You know, right? Uh, could we? You know, um, I actually have somebody right now that we're hoping her film will be that country's best foreign film oh, entry. Um, but she right. had made documentaries before, so that's cheating. Right, right. Really, but it's her first fiction feature. Um, but you know, if we, if I try to have it that we get the film made, we we raise the money, we get the film made, we get it into distribution. That's enough, you know. And right. then, and people get into film festivals and all kinds of other things happen as mm-hmm. well. That's great. But um, but those are my goals, like and 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 also to deliver the film without being in debt. Right, right. I mean, that's important, you know. So, um, yeah. So, I I look at that. There's people from that film that I went on to work with on many, many films after that. Wow. And, um, awesome. So, for me, the most important thing was for me to learn. Like I said back, you know, when I started, um, I think it's more important to make a film than to go to school. At the time, if if our budget was fifty or sixty thousand dollars, that was what it was to go to school and you know try and get a film degree, and right. and I felt like I had learned a lot. I had a film that was sold that we were making money with, and plus I did you know I had a, a a team that I would go on to work with. So so that was what was important to me then. Um, I yeah, love, we, I love the, I'm sorry to keep interrupting. No, no, that's all right. But the thing about building a team, um, one of my favorite filmmakers is John Sayles. Mm-hmm. He said after he made his first feature film, he realized that he had to either learn how to raise money or get a new set of friends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I say all the time, well, I also um, mentor people. I just recently wrote a book called Shooting for the Stars, A Film Producer's Journey. And it really is my it's the way I make films. I do the same thing every film. So 25 projects, I've done the same thing. And this is what it is. You know, I put it, I put it out there, but you know, I've shared film tips. I've had Patreon pages. I have a website where I, you know, share information and I I mentor people. And ultimately it's, it's great to see that something I'm, I'm offering, offering them helps them make maybe a passion project. So I totally identify with what you're doing, Joanne. I think it's great that you offer those services and that you're able to give people more of a chance to finish their film without debt, get distribution, be proud of it. You know, it's it's really important. Yes. And um, that that first feature is such a mountain for, for mm-hmm. people. Um, I definitely have to get your book um, because oh, thank you. I think that, you know, film producers, the, the reason I do this podcast is because um, I feel as though it's so rare that we ever get to hear from film mm-hmm. producers, especially anybody who's willing to talk about their first film, you know? Right, it's, right, right. Oh, my latest film with Tom Cruise or whatever it is. Right. You know, so because every filmmaker has to sort of learn how to climb this mountain if they want to be 25 years down the road and still making movies, you know? Right, right. 
I, I, I have a book coming out January the 1st called Getting Your Film Funded, Produced and Distributed Globally. And, oh. and, and, and a lot of it is, a lot of it is also talks about the places that filmmakers get stuck, you know? Right. The first feature is definitely a place that people get stuck. It, it really is. I, you know, I even, I think my first chapter is choosing the right project, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just really, there's so many different things you can do for your first um, project, but, but I think that people need to be realistic about doing something that they can do and getting over that and then increasing the challenges in future projects. So, you know, I think I specifically say, don't plan on making, you know, your sci-fi $10 million film, your first film, like that's just really difficult. You know, you can make even a short of your sci-fi dollar film and just see how, see how that goes. So um, yeah, I, th I think it's really important that people be realistic and, yes. and with their ex, you know, expectations and also know you're going to make mistakes and mm -hmm. there's, you know, everyone has, I think one of the, the other thing that, that stops filmmakers is they keep trying to make it perfect. So it will stop them in editing. It'll stop them maybe in production where they're filming and they're like, oh, that scene just wasn't right. Okay. I mean, depending on how not right it is, <laughs> you know, you might need to move past it. Right. And um, I just see people get stopped and they're like, oh no, it's just really important that it's this. And it's like, well, it's not really that important. If it was that important, that's not really, you're not really looking at the big picture, right? Having someone experience the whole film is the big picture. Yeah, I, it's so sad. I, I, I call it the clench when filmmakers just get stuck. And mm -hmm. the point that I see it happens most is when in the transition from completing the film to distribution. And mm -hmm. I have a client right now, my client, and mm -hmm. we're looking at various distribution uh, contracts. And then she just told me the other day, she's pulling the film, she's gonna go reshoot it. Yeah, that's that's a huge, um, that that's major. <laughs> I mean, that's just, it doesn't seem like the best choice. No, but. no, there's, there's always another film. There's always another script to write. There's always another, you know, possibility. And, but, but I think that, you know, I, I don't think I've ever said this before, but just listening to the way you said it, that knowing you're going to make mistakes is sort of like um, a comp making compromises. Mm -hmm. And so the, there's, there's compromises and then there's perfection and nobody's ever going to achieve perfection anyway, but, right, right. So it's, but, something about the way you just said it I just thought you know compromise that's love you know yeah it, you know it it is I, I mean everything has compromise you know every it, it, all successful things have compromise you know yeah. if you are not going to compromise you're going to be stuck that's right, right. yeah so, if, if you compromise there's really never going to be that end product right know? right and also Something that you think is really important may not make a difference to everybody else. Yes. You might just be using that as an excuse, right? Because, even you're, because you're afraid of many other things. You know, I I had a partner once that we were trying to raise money and do a film, and there was always something, there was always something that held it up. 
And I finally figured out what held it up. He held it up. He right. didn't, he was afraid to do it. Yes. He was afraid to actually do it for whatever reason. And so, you know, that relationship didn't last, but I, it opened up other, you know, um, opportunities for other relationships, which that's when I met Todd, um, uh -huh. Todd Wade, the person that directed the first feature that I did. And he just had a can-do attitude. We brought him on as a line producer for one of the, that film that we were trying to raise money for. And, you know, we'd found so many locations and got so many things put together and then, you know, they would fall apart. But he was like, you know, you can pull so many things together. Why don't you and I make a film? <laughs> right. Okay. You know, so, so that's when I, I had another film that was optioned and um, that's when we did it. So fabulous. And so um, I love what you were saying about building a team. So what are, what are some of your, um, what's some of your advice to being able to build a team that you can keep consistently working with? So I do think that you need to make sure they're on the same page, right? Um, I had worked with a, a wonderful, wonderful DP for multiple projects and I loved just the relationship and everything. But then when I did my first film, there were issues between she and I. And she didn't necessarily like the subject matter. <laughs> it's called Halloween Party, my first film I wrote, directed, and produced. And um, I think also because I was a first time feature director. I directed like commercials and things like that. There were just some dynamics that didn't really work out between us. And, and I realized, you know what, then we brought in a different, a different DP and that DP and I hit it off and just wow. he absolutely got the project and right. you know, looking at it because she shot the first 10 days and I shot, and he shot the last three days. And I can tell the difference seeing it, you know, there's yeah. just such a, there's such a difference creatively. And, and so I think it's really important that when you do have people you want to work with, that they support and see your vision. Right. Um, and not to say anything bad about her. I, I don't want to say anything bad about her. She's a great DP and she works with a lot of people I know. And I worked with her on several things and I loved I loved her work. It's just that film wasn't the right film for us, right? And yes. so, and then I went on to work with the second DP for a few more films, but then he moved. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had to find a new DP. And then I ended up, he had a first AC that I ended up, um, usually first ACs for assistant cameras or gaffers are also DPs themselves. And so, yeah. Yeah. And they just are looking for that opportunity. And so I started working with one of his first ACs. Her name's Jennifer Hook, and she has shot almost all of my other stuff. So that mm -hmm. was a really, really great um, way to build a team. But, you know, that's just one person. That's one part of the team is your DP. It's an important part for sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. And, and then another thing, this is really cool. I, I really recommend this for anybody is I've brought a lot of people in um, 
trying them out in a, in a position. It's not necessarily the position they want to be in, but they start a position and I allow them to grow. Right. So um, there's a girl I work with as a UPM unit production manager now, or line producer names, Karina Farah, fantastic. But she started working for me as an intern. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Probably like my third project, she came and did a in, in, little intern thing with me. And then after that, it was just on a promotional video. After that, then I started hiring her as an assistant director because she was, or yeah, an AD. And she was fantastic. I mean, she was my AD for so long. And and then I felt bad actually keeping her as an AD because she really wanted to move into line producing or UPMing. And I felt like it was, I needed to get comfortable with getting a different AD, you know, um, and let her do that because she more than had the skills to do it. And she worked with me on everything. And then again, you know, another position, my editor, uh, he was a college student. He had moved out to California from North Carolina. And I think I hired him for his first feature in California. And he's gone on to edit almost every project I've done. (laughs) Yeah. So, so for, you know, team building, that's how I've gone about it. It's fantastic. I, I feel as though it's a very, very exquisite skill that not everybody has, but it's so great if you can have a team and keep moving from one project to the next. That's why that when I bring up John Sales, John Sales is still working with the same people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the only time I'm not going to work with the same person is if they have a scheduling conflict, right? And they're not available, but I literally have people in every position that I love that I work with and, and I prefer them each time I do a film and then they'll say, Oh, I'm, you know, working on something else, but they'll usually give me recommendations that work out great. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I would say also that I think it's super important. I don't know about you, Joanne, but this is a really low integrity industry. People mm-hmm. have the lowest integrities and do not follow through on what they say. And I don't know what it is about, about <laughs> this. I don't know if it's just that they, it attracts so many horrible people, but um, if you if you actually follow through on what you say you're going to do, yes. then people want to work with you. You'll get so many people that don't. <laughs> If you follow through, you'll get promoted. It's true. And it's the, it's the easiest thing. Just do your job, right? Sort of enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do your job with enthusiasm and you'll get, you'll get a promotion. It, yeah. it's, I don't know what it is. I suspect that it's the same in every industry. This is, this is my theory. It's the same in every industry, but in, in other industries, being a flake doesn't show up the way it does in a film. And I feel as though when you're making micro budget films, it shows up so glaringly, you know? Mm. And and so one of the things I think I, I, I talk about all the time that people think is not is not intuitive is the less money you have, the more willing you have to be to fire somebody who is not right. That's true. And, and it's, it's very true. hard for people to do it. And they, they, you know, a lot of filmmakers come from this perspective of like, well, I'm not paying people very much. So I have to kind of yeah. go, absolutely not. 
Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, there's a couple of things that happen with low budget productions. Number one, you do put up with a lot more than you would in other situations. <laughs> you know, people that shouldn't pro probably be there. But um, I can't even think of the thing. The second thing I was going to say, um, I lost my train of thought. Well, it's just that <laughs> it's just that I think a lot of times people filmmakers do think that or I have I don't have much money so I have to put up with things and I'm like no that's when you can least afford to put up with anything right you know? oh I remember the second thing the second okay. thing things will always go wrong yes <laughs> they'll always go wrong there will always be I've never worked on a film where something didn't go wrong you right. have to have a backup plan yeah you have to have many many backup plans but yeah yeah those are two things you have to do on your feet <laughs> yeah absolutely you have to be even more creative in yeah. independent yeah. production yes and the less money the more creativity i i have a client exactly in trinidad i'm I'm half trinidadian she called me up from the set one day and she said oh em emily's gonna know this she said oh we were we were at the harbor in chaguanas i think it was and and the police came and shut us down <laughs> <laughs> and I said, why, why? And she said, well, because they said we had to get a permit and it takes two weeks to get a permit. And I said, okay, so nobody got arrested, nothing bad happened. And the next day she had a better set at a beautiful country club type of place. I don't know how all that happened, but that's what filmmakers yeah. have to do, right? Blah, 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 blah. right. Make something happen. Right. And, um, you know, that's the that's when the real creativity shows up especially oh absolutely absolutely something goes wrong and and magically it ends up being better than it was supposed to be. Well, also also when you're open to suggestions from people i know in halloween party my first film that i directed uh there was a situation where um so that's a, a comedy about a girl looking for love on the most deceptive night of the year. <laughs> so she comes to her friend's party and, and uh, all sorts of hijinks happens. But so there's a couple there, the wench and the pirate, and they're your, they're, they're your couple that they're arguing all the time. You're just waiting for him to get divorced. It's like, how are they still together? Right. And so the pirate at one point was supposed to, fall off the balcony and then just be hanging by his foot the whole time and different people would walk past him and he'd be hanging there he couldn't get out of it right <laughs> and we had a problem with first of all because that was we shot in our house so that was the front of our house and doing that particular stunt and so it was like the first day when we were realized we couldn't do that particular stunt and we had to have something that separated them and so I put it out to the you know my first meeting of, on the first day of set I said okay we were going to do this it's not going to work I'm open to suggestions <laughs> how do how do we split these people up and got, we got all kinds of suggestions and actually the couple came up with the suggestion that that works so right. it's perfect it's so perfect. You, you just like, oh, that's so much better than what we were going to do. Wow. Um, so now from going from your first feature to today, you know, um, with the the film that I, I watched, um, you had, you know, very well-known actors and 
Um, tell us a little bit about how you make a film today compared to back then. What's What are the um, differences? Did you see Turnover? Is that the one you watched? Turnover, yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Very clever. Turnover, by, by the way. Oh, thank you. Turnover is a very special film. <laughs> um, that's something that I had written like 10 years ago. So I just want to tell anyone that's ever written a project and they're like, when is this ever going to get made? <laughs> 10 years from the time you write it. <laughs> just give yourself time. But um, after we had done um, a film called Last Call at Murray's, um, I had, that was my second major feature film. And um so after that, I had met some investors that they were looking at what else I had done or, mm -hmm. you know, had in my um, sort of repertoire of projects and I let them return over. And they're like, it was specifically this one couple. And they were like, oh, we really love this. This is a great film. You have to try and do it. And actually it was so funny. It's timing. It's timing, right? When you have the right people, come around at the right time, they believe in you. Um, a lot of things can happen. So there were these two producers, they both read it, they both wanted to make it like the next thing we all worked on. And we started raising funding and, you know, we were able to pull together our largest budget for that particular film. And we were actually able to make it by 2019. Um, I think it was 2017 when we started. So it took us about two years for the three of us uh, as producers to pull all of our resources together and get that put together. But, you know, it had challenges, um, not the same challenges because, you know, I had a very, very well um, grease machine, I guess you can call it in my team. Like we'd worked together on many, many things and uh, the biggest the biggest challenge with that was finding a location that would work for the restaurant. Right. And my husband happened to be walking down the street in our neighborhood and realized that this cafe rented out their corner cafe for, you know, events. And so we, we contacted him and said, could we rent it for two weeks? And they gave us a really good deal. Again, it goes back to that sales. I talked to the general manager of that restaurant and and it was funny because in the in the script, the little French cafe is just down the street from a Mediterranean cafe, which it turns out to be like a there's sort of a rivalry between them. And so the main main business was a Mediterranean business. And <laughs> and so when they rented their corner cafe to us, they were open to us changing it. They let us they let us actually go in and paint it. Ah. So like there was a lot of change to make it look different, but obviously we had to bring it back to what it looked like. Uh, so they got new paint out of the deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got a brand new clean restaurant because, <laughs> you know, when you're a film team, like they'll take everything apart, right? And then put it back together. And they and the people we had in there cleaning, just cleaning were so specific. They were literally cleaning restaurant appliances down to I don't think they'd ever been that clean right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway it turned out to be a good thing another another funny thing challenge for that was um you know the sailing scenes mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that's a big part of it to establish the owner is a sailor. And so the only day that we could do that sailing scene was this one particular day we we picked. The day before that, the fog had rolled in. There's no way we could have gone out. And the day after that, it was so windy, we couldn't have gone out that day and had our drone operator work at all. So literally the only day we could have done it is the day it worked out. So can you tell everybody what the log line is of that film? Um, it's about a restaurateur that basically is um, has a new staff, compl- <laughs> um, compliments of his old manager, that is completely wrong for the business. And they he has to choose whether or not he's going to keep them and keep the business open or if he's going to close the business down. And, and it's really about how they change his life. They change every aspect of, of the man's life. And, you know, it's a really diverse group of people. We have um, two actors that have Down syndrome. We have a lot of deaf actors in it. Um, so we had a lot of support from those communities. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And um, it just, it's it was such a magical experience. So many things went right with that. I'm going to actually go back to what you said earlier about working with actors and like they they might um, make suggestions. Paul Guilfoyle, who is the uh, from CSI and lots of other amazing films, uh, plays the lead in that. And he's the restaurateur whose life's changed. But he read the script and he loved it, came in and had a meeting with us where he talked to us about the story. You know, at this level, you're not auditioning people like that. You know, (laughs) we had put a breakdown out and his manager expressed interest that he might have interest. And so he did read it. He came in and he talked to us, but he was, um, he was saying there were some things that he would be interested in, in having a conversation to further develop the character and I'm like, yeah, sure, I don't care. <laughs> so so he and I actually work through some of the things that Peter was going through. And I think that through his insight of it, it turned into a better, a better story mm. by listening to him. Right. A wonderful experience. Yeah, yeah. He was he was really great at that. So I think that another place that filmmakers get stuck is in trying to, on the one hand, increase their budgets, but then getting blocked from being able to find name actors like Paul Guilford. I'm glad you just said his name because I would never know how to pronounce it. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you uh, bring him onto the film? What's your secret source to bringing on a a wonderful name actor like that? Honestly, in all of the stuff I've worked on, my casting director put out a breakdown and um, in the breakdowns, you get lots of submissions, right? And so we've got submissions from a lot of recognizable talent. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, you might get submissions and then they're only interested if they're paid a certain amount, right? So they're not really going to do it because you don't have X number to pay them. But sometimes you find someone that falls in love with it, Right. So um, the first time I had a chance to work with a celebrity was in my short film, Our Father, Mm -hmm. uh, which is about a family taking care of their estranged father who has dementia. And it's a very powerful role. It's based on a true story in our family. 
And um, it's really two main characters, the son and the father, and it all takes place in a bathroom. And uh, there might be one little, one or two extra shots that are memories that go back to an even smaller bathroom. <laughs> but anyway, so um, when I did that and we put the breakdown out, we actually got quite a few submissions, but Michael Gross from Family Ties and Tremors was submitted. And we were like, oh, wow, that's, it's, he, it was a, someone totally different than I had thought of, huh. but he is such a fantastic actor. And so he wanted to meet me because um, it's a challenging script, right? And so we were that talking- a very challenging script, beautiful. Yeah. Film. So we, we met, I uh, had lunch and he was telling me how much he loved the story. He and his wife had taken care of their, her mom mm -hmm. who had dement, um, dementia or Alzheimer's. And mm -hmm. so she had lived with them and they had firsthand, you know, experience with that. And so he really felt like he wanted to do it, a project that was strong in a, a homage to his mother-in-law. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when we were talking, I said, well, is there anything that you feel like you would change or want changed. And he's like, and I'm very open as a writer. I, you know, at, after I'm done with it, I sort of take that hat off and I'm open to suggestion, you know, if it, right. if it's right. And he goes, I wouldn't change a word. Wow. He goes, it's perfect. It's perfect. And I'm like, wow, I never expected that. And he goes, okay, no, no, there's one word. I would change one word. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny because it was a word that needed to be changed. And it, and it's because it was a word, I used a word that's more common um, today to describe something. And in the fifties or sixties, that word was not used for that. There was a different word for it. And, and so he goes, just timing wise, he goes, that word was, wouldn't it be a word that he would use? You know, he wouldn't use that word in, in, in this description. And I said, you're absolutely right. That is not the right word for it. So it was so funny. Like when you open yourself up to trusting other people that they'll bring something great to it, they really will. That's fantastic. And um, I wonder if um, um, Paul Guilfoyle took the role because it was so many, so many layers to the role. I mean, I mean, I always just say actors want to act. Mm -hmm. And so I, I see somebody like him and I think, well, you know, he's over there in CSI, he's making plenty of money, is fine. But mm -hmm. is that the same as getting a role where he can play all these aspects of a human being that that's, you know, in, in in both those films, I felt as though your writing was, you know, really, really stretched psychologically. Mm. What an actor gets to do, which is what's right. fun. Right. And actually, um, I think that that is the first feature that Paul's done where he's the star. Uh-huh. Paul is always the co-star. He's always oh, the co-star. Always. And, you know, having a, a leading role in something, I think is a big deal, you yes. know, no matter, and, and I think it also makes a difference um, 
this is something that my casting and I dire- director and I used to talk about all the time offering say a movie role to a tv star right because tv stars want movie roles yeah. this is back yeah. before tv was like what it is now with sure. streaming sure. Netflix and all that but um but yeah if you if you just offer them something different than what they're used to or you do the research to find out that they have a desire to do something or to work with somebody or whatever and you can make that happen I think that that also is a way to attract talent you know yes yes research Um, is key yes if anybody uh I can't even see everybody today but if anybody would like to ask a question please wave your hand or raise your digital hand Emily you can always tell me if there's somebody there um who wants to ask a question um I I had another question. Oh, Mark wants to. Okay, Mark, go ahead. Um, well, first of all, Linda, thank you so much for uh, being here today. I really uh, am inspired by your story. And as an independent filmmaker, I'm wondering how how you go about funding your films and how that's changed over the years. So the first, and I talk about this, I have a... Um, at chapter eight, chapter eight of my book is all about film funding. And, um, you know, one of the big things I say is you have to be comfortable with whatever the range is that you're trying to raise. If you are trying to raise $10 million and you've never raised a hundred thousand, it's going to be very difficult for you to get there. Right. Um, the, probably the only way you'll get there is if you bring in other people that have those relationships to bring in larger amounts of money. So I've kind of always gravitated to projects that I knew I could raise the money for. So that was always in the couple hundred thousand, half a million dollar range, um, because I had the connections that I felt like I could do that. Um, But, you know, you wouldn't find me out trying to do a hundred million dollar film. It's like, that's just not in my it's just not in the people I know, my connections, my space. Um, that's very encouraging to me because I have raised a half a million dollars and that that's the, the range that I want to make films in. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, once you do the your half million dollar film, then you're going to push up to, you know, three quarters of a million or a million or three million. You know, I, very few people start out and I'm sure there's one or, you know, a couple, but very few people start out raising a hundred million dollars or $10 million for their very first film. It no. just doesn't happen. Right. And, and uh, with the, with these budgets, do you go after private individuals or season the uh, uh, investors or. So I, I'd say that, um, probably about half the funding that I've done is through investors for features, for feature films. And the other half is through crowdfunding. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We, we've done, in fact, on turnover, Joanne, that you were mentioning before, um, we brought in close to a third of the budget in crowdfunding. Wow. Yeah. So Joanne, you're muted. Sorry, do you do crowdfunding for all your movies? Just as a yes. sort of, of course. Yes. Oh, 
I'm so thrilled to hear you say that because well, um, oh, go ahead. I'm a proponent of, of crowdfunding. Um, not that I think that that's the way to make all the budget for a movie or anything like that. In fact, Marcus, we, we make it a piece of, of, of the mm-hmm. larger whole. Um, but I just think it's such a an awesome way of building an audience and and starting to get movement on a on a film. And that's the number one thing. I mean, people don't realize that a crowdfunding campaign is more about finding your audience. And and those are those initial people that get involved in crowdfunding, no matter what the level, they already want to see your film. They're already interested. They want to see your film, right? So the very minimum that you need to give them is access to say like a first cut or like the, you know, the premiere of it for a limited time. And that's a digital, that's a digital perk, right? So it doesn't cost you anything other than making the film <laughs> to deliver that perk, right? Um, I I talk a lot about crowdfunding, but ultimately it's free money. You're giving up free money and a chance to find your audience if you don't crowdfund. Um, when I say free money, it's not money that comes with any kind of creative control. If you have investors, you might get an investor that puts half the budget in, but they want their daughter to have a role in it, right? Or they have some other all, you know, some other thing they want. Maybe they want it rewritten. Maybe they want it shot in some location that they own or, you know, whatever. There's there's things that investors will will ask of you that could change it. And um not necessarily for the good. Maybe sometimes it might be, but generally not. Um, but when you have crowdfunding, that's not money that you have to, you know, deal with anybody about changing anything. You don't have to pay it back either. Exactly. It's free money. <laughs> so do you have a fiscal uh, fiscal agent for a nonprofit? Um, so, so yeah, we started working with From the Heart Productions, which is fantastic. One of the, uh, they're my favorite uh, outlet for crowdfunding because number one, every dollar that's donated, they give a, um, a tax deductible receipt. So I. I'm not involved in that at all. It goes through their platform and they automatically send that tax deductible receipt. And then the other thing I love that they do is they give you money throughout. So where a lot of campaigns, you have to wait for it to end and then like go two weeks before you get the money from the heart starts giving you the money within two weeks of getting it. So they're constantly feeding you that money. So depending on what you're working on, that could be enough to get you through some pre-production or pay for a location that you have a down payment on a location or, you know, a lot of things like that. So I think that that's a significant thing. Also, they have a grant program. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they tend to work with films that have social uh, messages in their grant program, but that's another great resource, you know, and if you have a relationship with them through using their crowdfunding um, platform, I think that that, you know, helps out. Carol gets to know you better and, (laughs) you know, it's all about relationships, but not that that's going to be the reason that that you get a grant, but you get to know Carol and they're going to, they're going to do things to help support you as well. Great. Thank you so much. It's just oh, no really inspiring. No problem. There's so much more information in my book. Okay. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. 
Thomas book. Oh, you know, I I forgot to do do a lot of people bring up about your name being Linda Palmer because it's so. So famous. yeah, that's that's funny because it obviously it's a very common name. Um, on Goodreads, just for instance, there's a Linda Palmer there. So my book is actually on her page, but you're uh -huh. probably referring to Linda Palmer in the industry, the other producer. And uh, she, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, so there, there is another Linda Palmer. She did like garbage pail kids and a lot of, a lots of, a lot of television. And she's a, she was a teacher, um, a screenwriting teacher at UCLA. So a lot of people are like, oh, I took your class from you at UCLA. I'm like, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> it was the other Linda Palmer. Um, now, of course, uh, I'm not going to remember the show. But anyway, Linda Palmer is one of the characters in a show. Oh, you're thinking of Laura Palmer. Twin Laura Palmer. <laughs> oh, it's not Linda. Oh, okay. Laura Palmer. Yeah, I got that too. I got that too. Yeah. yeah, no, that's, that's fun. But it's, you know, the challenging thing is the, the worst part of having a common name is the situation with Goodreads, right? Where there's another author and I have to like go through the, all the processes to change that. And it's just hours worth of time, which I still haven't done it. So anyway. Like having on, on IMDb and having the same name as, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But okay, so that's another thing now that you bring up IMDb. So one of the things in my crowdfunding campaigns is I always give credits, right? And I have a, a really big writing network that I've gone in and I've spoken to it, it, well, it's screenwriting you. I don't know if you guys know screenwriting you. Oh yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, Hal Hal Crossman uh, has brought me in several times, and I sp have spoken at many events for for their students and everything. But over the years, um, Hal has shared some of my campaigns with his group, and it's a large, large community. So that one of the things that he said is you know, you want to develop a relationship with producers. And one of the ways you develop a relationship is through building your own IMDb, building your own credibility, right? Yeah. And so a lot of his writers wanted to build their IMDb. And because I was given associate producer, co-producer co or executive producer credits that helped them. And so they got to have that credit on one of my films right. and that and that also built up a long-term relationship with many of them where they initially um got to know me through that but then they would contribute to more than one campaign more more than one project and you know i have people that have gone from contributing 250 dollars in you know a, on a short to contributing 2500 to 5000 dollars as an investor on a, on a film later. So, you know, a lot of that is just, again, you need to follow through on what you say. If you're building a crowdfunding campaign, it's really important that you follow through on the perks and just doing what you say you're going to do. And as you do that, people just start getting a lot, they have a lot more faith in you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Everything that you've been talking about today, I think is all about relationships, you know, mm -hmm talk about film as being such a relationship industry um, right. 
really what you've been saying at the end about getting into the world of investors is it's all about relationships, you know, right, right. And take an investor from one film to the next or a crowdfunding donor from one film to the next. It's all part of being a filmmaker, being a producer and building your community. Right, right. And the only way you can build it is if you always follow through. So, right. <laughs> One other thing I'd, I'd say, and this kind of goes back to, I just sort of realized that this was probably a path. Um, so, like I said, I wanted to be a journalist at, at one point. And after COVID or during COVID, we started realizing my husband and I, who's my producing partner, um, and just like my biggest supporter ever is that, you know, doing a film that's a half a million dollars or a million dollars, even several hundred thousand dollars. Um, if that happened during COVID, it would have been very detrimental to us. You know, mm. we might not have recovered from that, mm. which was a little bit of a challenge, right. To think of. And so during COVID, we started thinking about other things that we would want to do that would allow us the same sort of creativity. And so we really looked into the documentary space. We were watching a lot of documentaries and um, invested in buying a black magic camera and sound equipment, lighting equipment, and actually editing our own things. And so literally what that did, um, going through the school of YouTube... <laughs> <laughs> how to turn on the camera, how to do all this stuff was um, we end up becoming better filmmakers, right? And so we shoot a lot in the documentaries um, with the with the black magic, but also with our iPhones because the iPhone technology is just incredible, right? right? And so now we're doing a documentary series that we've we have like two episodes in post. And two, we've released, it's called Halloween Obsessed. And really, it really talks about all aspects of Halloween. And we do a deep dive into, you know, various aspects of it. So, you know, that's kind of where we're at now, you know, slowing down a little bit. I think your episode is really about filmmakers' lifestyles, like, <laughs> you know, and, and I think, you know, now we just want to do things that we want to do. And we have relationships with some distributors that we can get that series, you know, placed, but it's also something that we can do when we want to do it. It's something right. we're doing because we love the holiday and it's just, we learn so much more and we get to know so many more people in a space that we love, you know? So I, I think um, it's, it's kind of interesting going from wanting to be a journalist or that sort of filmmaker to being in a documentarian you know, right. very similar. Yeah. Um, but it, it's funny that you, the title is Halloween obsessed because then it goes back to your first feature, right? No, no. Yes. Well, if you, if you oh. knew us really well, <laughs> uh, we are total Halloween fanatics. We got married on <laughs> Halloween. I wow. was a corpse bride. He was a corpse groom. Oh my gosh. We have the most insane Halloween parties, which is how our Halloween party movie got made um, or inspired. So yeah, like it, it literally is a, it's sort of, it's sort of a culture thing. 
do you guys have yeah. you does anyone know about the 12 foot skeletons the giant skeletons people have in their yards right oh. <laughs> so, so we have our 12 foot skeleton these people and the people they have those 12 foot skeletons there's even a group for them it's like there's there's actually several groups but it's literally a thing for for people to like have their 12 foot skeleton up all year long and what you do to entertain people with your 12 foot skeleton wow it, no, it's so fun to listen how you get so lit up talking about Halloween and 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 then yeah, why not make a series about it? Why not make a documentary right. series about something that you absolutely love? What a great yeah. idea! So so here's just just an idea, right? So the first one we did is the misconception of witches. So it's Halloween obsessed, the misconception of witches, and that's really a conversation with four modern day witches, right? And talking about what it's like to be a witch and what their craft is, right? And then the second one is called Halloween Obsessed Haunted Attractions. And that's really about all of these attractions that are out there that are like little haunts. Some people have like a little yard haunt you can walk through, or some people have a home haunt where you can walk through part of their home or their backyard. And then all the way up to like just a huge professional haunt, we interviewed the number one haunt in America, which is Field of Screams in Pennsylvania. And they have 35 acres of haunted attractions. <laughs> wow. so they have hay rides, they have all these different things. It's it's almost to the point, it's a the, it's like a theme park at Field of Screams, right? And then the next one is about paranormal. So there's so much that we've done in interviews for paranormal that we split it. And so the first segment deals with um, it's like living with the paranormal. So it's medium, psychic, seers, that sort of thing. And then the second part is the paranormal investigators, the people that are going out and they're investigating, trying to find paranormal, right? So, yeah, I mean, there's so many different subcategories that yeah. lend themselves, right? And they're about 40 minute episodes. So yeah, it's just a lot of fun. We get to we wow. have fun. It's, it's like that that series Supernatural that went for, right. how, I don't know how many seasons, but it makes sense. Anything about paranormal, I'm in. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, well, it's it literally is such a popular thing. Obviously, there's so many shows about paranormal experiences. So that'll probably be our most popular episode. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, how fun. I, I just love the idea of making a duck series about something you just love so much. Right? Well, honestly, we had to do that because we were like, if we're going to try to learn how to be a cinematographer, like at least run our own camera <laughs> when we've always hired someone to do that. And editing was the worst because neither of us are really editors. And, you know, my husband would say at any given time, He's about two minutes away from throwing the computer out the window. <laughs> oh, I've been there. I have I have been there for sure. Yeah. But listen, Linda, thank you so much. What fun to meet you. And oh, thank you for having your me. Work and your book. Thank you. I'm gonna get. Um and uh yeah we have to stay in touch this was really absolutely i would love to hear more about what you're doing i did see your film i watched the yellow yellow wall or is it oh, the yellow, yellow wallpaper yes yeah, yellow wallpaper i actually thought it was really well done um i i saw some of the comments on it but i think 
that people probably were thinking it was more of a horror film and not really a psychological, like just the psychological breakdown yeah. of a woman, right? Um, but I thought it was really well shot and yeah. very well designed. Design is one of my favorite things to do, but I love the design in it. It was, yeah. And I, it, I'm not so much a horror fan, but I'm certainly a fan of what I think of as real horror. Right, right. Is what that was, you know, real horror. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank you for well, watching. Thank you. We'll we'll keep in touch and thank everybody for coming and listening and uh go out and make movies. Yes. <laughs> Bye everybody. Thank you so Bye. much. Everybody. Bye.